0: Amen. I am so thankful for uh, Dan Morell, who's been our man on the streets during the month of December. I'm really thankful for uh, the way that he uh, went out and got those interviews and talked to people in Midland and kind of gave us a taste of uh, what people are saying and what people are thinking about the Christmas season. I hope that you had a good Christmas. I'm going to ask you right now, what did you get for Christmas? That's our question this morning. What did you get for Christmas? I got a ton of gifts. One of the things that I got from my sweet, awesome wife, Carrie Ann, was these Whataburger socks. What do you think about these? (laughs) These are pretty awesome, aren't they? I love these Whataburger socks. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell the person next to you right now, or somebody in front of you, somebody behind you, just tell them right now one thing that you got for Christmas. Go, one thing. All right, now here's what else I want you to do. I want you to acknowledge right here with a raise of your hand or a sheepish grin, if you've already returned one of your gifts. If you've already, I know it was just yesterday, but some of y'all are serious about this, right? Returning gifts. We, we know how to return gifts, don't we? Um, it's become almost, well, not just accepted, but expected that everybody's going to return something that you got for Christmas, you know? The truth is, you don't always get exactly what you want, you know? I think all of us, every year, get at least one gift that's not what we wanted. But, but we know how to deal with that. We know how to still show appreciation. We know how to fake that. We, we learn that at an early age. It's an avocado Thanks. You know, we we know how to do that, but we also know how to re-gift as well. How many of you re-gifted something this weekend? Yeah, I mean, it happens, right? Apparently the most re-gifted gift is a candle. How many of you received a candle at some point over the last six or seven days? Now what you wanna do when you get home is look at the bottom of that candle. This happened at my mom's house two Christmases ago. Somebody got a candle, I'm not gonna say who because they watch these sermons occasionally, but you know who you are, Rhonda. Um, (laughs) On the bottom of the candle, it was very clear that that candle had been given at least one other time if not twice, and so that's the most re-gifted gift. Um, I saw some other numbers that said 34% of us are going to return at least one gift that we received. And that accounts for 13% of all the gifts that were received at Christmas time. 13% are gonna be returned. And so we used to say, it's the thought that counts with the gift, but now it's more like, did you include a gift receipt? That's, That's the thought, that's what counts, right? And so we're we're all familiar with this. And the question this morning is, what did you get for Christmas? Um, When Jesus was born, they brought him gifts, right? Uh, And the gifts were practical. The gifts that Jesus received were useful. Jesus was born in a stable and he was made to lay in the hay with the sheep and the goats. And the wise men brought incense and perfume. That's... Why we call them wise men, those were very smart gifts. Frankincense and myrrh were like the first century equivalent of plug-ins and Febreze, okay? So that was, that was a very wise gift. I'm sure Mary appreciated it and she did not send it back. I've seen this week that um, the, the monetary amount of the gifts that are gonna be returned is anywhere from 42 to 90 billion dollars. Gifts that are gonna be returned. Or exchanged. That's a lot of tight sweaters and Pepperidge Farm sample trays. You know what I mean? Although you probably can't return a Pepperidge Farm sample tray, I'm guessing. But what did you get for Christmas? For almost 2,000 years now, the church has set aside the month of December to remember the gift that our God has given to all of us. We have been given the precious gift of God's coming to us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we remember. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But now Christmas is over and we're gonna go back to work and we're gonna go back to school and all the relatives are gonna go back home where they belong. And after we put up the Christmas tree and stow away all the lights, Our lives are going to go back to normal and there's not going to be anything to remind us anymore of Christmas except the credit card bills and those all go in that stack in the kitchen anyway. We don't pay them any attention. God has come into this world in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and that is so awesome in December. But what does Christmas mean for us from January through November? What difference does it make? What does it really matter that our Lord Jesus lived and died on this earth just like you? What did you really get when God gave you his son? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 8. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time together this morning. Luke 8, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Hold on a second. This is not a Christmas passage. Why are you reading this? Christmas is over, okay? It's not Christmas anymore. What we're doing now is we're looking at what we got when God gave us Jesus. What does it really mean, okay? There's three things in this passage that are very Practical for us, very profound for us, that we can take with us now that Christmas is over. One day, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 22, "'Let's go over to the other side of the lake.' So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, "'Master, Master, we're going to drown.' He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. The first thing that the coming of Jesus means for us after Christmas is that Jesus shares your situation. Jesus Christ is in the boat with you. Literally and figuratively, he gets into your boat with you. He joins you in your circumstance. He takes on whatever it is you're taking on together with you. God in Christ came to this earth to share your humanity, to share your situation. And you know, we spend a lot of time in this room on Sunday mornings talking about the divinity of Jesus. Most of the songs we sing are about Jesus's power and his authority and his majesty and the fact that he is risen and he is reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that's right. And Jesus being God in the flesh is true and it's amazing. It's absolutely unfathomable. But the truth is Jesus is also a man in the flesh. Jesus Christ is a human being. And that's how he identifies with you. That's how he knows you so well. Hebrews 2 says, since his children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Philippians chapter two, you know this passage, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God, something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in our human likeness. He was made and appeared to us as a man. His heavenly glory, his divine authority, his creative power. Jesus gave all of that up physically to embrace you. To embrace your situation. He left it, is what the Bible says. He poured it out. He emptied himself, is what it says here in Philippians 2, so that he could jump right into the middle of your mess with you. So he could experience what you experience. He knows. When Jesus carries your prayers to the throne room of God, he does so understanding exactly what you're going through. He knows where you're coming from. He gets it. He knows intimately all your emotions and and pressures and all the struggles because he went through every single one of them just like you. Hebrews chapter 4. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Praise God. We have one who was tempted in every way just like we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When the storm comes, and if it hasn't come for you yet, it's going to. It's not if the storm comes. When the storm comes you know Jesus is in the boat with you. He knows what it's like to be beaten down by the wind and to be tossed about by the waves. He knows because he's done it. And so when you're in the middle of a storm, you can be calm. You can be assured because he shares his peace with you. His calm and his control over the elements will give you a peace and a security knowing that he's right there with you and knowing he's in charge. That no matter what's going on around you right now, no matter what storm may be coming for you in this next year, your safety and your destiny is never in doubt. You're not by yourself. The all-powerful Lord of heaven and earth loves you and he wants only what's best for you. And he shares your situation. And he meets your needs. Going back to that Luke chapter 8. When they get to the other side of the lake, they encounter this man who's been overtaken by a legion of demons. Remember we talked about this guy back on Halloween This guy's not in control of his life. He's not in control of his body or his mind. His demons control him. And he battles these demons every hour of every day. This man has no family. He has no community. He has no clothes. He doesn't have a home. He's not in his right mind. He has no friends. He has no purpose. This man has no hope. These demons have taken away from him everything it means to be created in the image of God. This guy's got nothing but his hour-to-hour struggle with his demons. And that's when Jesus shows up. Jesus shares right into this man's situation. Jesus Jesus pulls right into this man's life. And he asks him, what's your name? I want to know who you are. I want to know what you're going through. I want to get close to you. Jesus takes care of this man's deepest needs. Beginning in verse 32, these demons, as soon as they come into contact with Jesus, they beg the Lord to let them go out of this man and into the pigs, and the demons come out of the man, and the pigs are drowned, and when those tending the pigs, verse 34, saw what happened, they ran off and reported it. Everybody in the town, everybody in the countryside, verse 35, they came out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Jesus drives the demons away. He utterly and completely destroys all the things that were distressing this tortured man. Jesus met his needs. One of my favorite stories about Jesus is in John chapter 13. All the disciples are around dinner together on that last night. And verse three says, all things had been put under Jesus's power. All things. Jesus was given power over all things. Let me ask you this. What do you do when you're given power? What do you do when you're put in a position of authority? You use it, right? You, you pull rank, you, you boss people around. You ever leave your kids at home by themselves and put the oldest one in charge? It's a disaster, right? That never works. You hear about it as soon as you get home, how awful everything was. And so here's Jesus. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He is their Lord and teacher, it says, with all the power and all the authority under heaven. And he's with this group of young men who just don't get it. They have not been paying attention. They they certainly have not understood. One of them is about to betray Jesus into the hands of his killers. All of them, in fact, are going to betray Jesus in a variety of ways in just a matter of hours. And Jesus takes off his coat. And he wraps a towel around his waist. And he fills a big bowl with water. And he gets down on his knees. And with his own hands, he washes the feet of every single person in that room. Jesus, Lord and teacher, hand washes 120 stinky, smelly, sweaty, disgusting toes and all the gunk in between them. Why did he do that? The lowliest act of service. Reserved for only the lowliest of slaves. Jesus washes their feet. Why did he do it? Peter asked him the same question. Why are you doing this, Jesus? That is a deeply profound question that has been pondered by the greatest theological minds of every age. And you deserve this morning a deeply profound and theological answer to this question that streams from years of careful study and personal reflection. Are you ready? Here it is. Why did Jesus wash their feet? Because they were dirty. Their feet were dirty, they needed washing. I know that's the kind of insight you're looking for me by now, right? You're welcome. That's it, the feet were disgusting. They needed washing and so Jesus washed them. That's the point to this story. You know, they're walking around every day in sandals in a land that only sees rain five or six times a year. Can anybody relate to that? If anybody can, we can, right? This would be like walking in your Chacos from here to Cotton Flat and back every single day for like three weeks. Your feet are gonna be disgusting. It's gross. Their feet needed washing, and so Jesus did it. I think it's that simple. Jesus makes it simple in verse 10. He says, you've already had a bath. You don't need a bath. Your feet are gross. I need to wash your feet. And so he does. And church, I think there is something deeply profound here and something really practical for us. Jesus meets your real needs. You got any real needs in your life? Any real needs at all? what are they? Jesus takes care of them. You know, the world promises to take care of all your needs. The world advertises and markets all the answers to all of your problems. But if you've tried what the world is selling, you're still empty. You're still hollow inside, maybe even dirty Solomon, remember King Solomon? He tried everything there was under the sun. He had the resources to do it. He tried to fill his needs with the most beautiful women in the world and with the biggest and most luxurious homes on the planet, with the most scholarly books and education available. He tried with the latest and the fanciest technologies. And after he had tried all of that, Solomon writes, God has put eternity in our hearts. In other words, there's a spot in your soul that only God can fill. And that's real. Audio Adrenaline calls it a God-shaped hole. I don't care what you call it, but there is something inside you that cannot be filled with anything except a personal relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christ who shares your situation. The Lord who meets your needs and the Lord who saves your life. Go back to Luke chapter eight. When Jesus returns to Galilee, there's a synagogue ruler named Jairus who asked Jesus to heal his 12 year old daughter. And as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, a servant runs up with the bad news. This little girl has died. She's dead. She's not sick. She's not asleep. She's not in a coma. She's not just tired. This girl has died. Jesus said to Jairus, verse 50, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. She's going to be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead. She's asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Knowing. They thought they knew. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned at once She stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Our Lord Jesus shares your situation and he meets your needs and the greatest need you have is for his life. Your greatest need is the salvation of your soul, to be woken up from the darkness of a life without hope, to walk in newness, Of a life of light, the light of His grace and His forgiveness and His mercy and His salvation. In Isaiah 59, the Bible says, my sins separate me from God. Romans 3, 23 makes it very plain. We have all sinned. You have sinned. I'm a sinner. I have sinned. And I've been separated from God. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. So, you've sinned, I've sinned, we've all sinned. and There's nothing for us now except death. The only thing that can happen for us is death. Unless somebody dies in my place. Unless someone else, someone without any sin at all. Somebody who's already in a perfect, righteous relationship with God. Unless somebody like that takes the bullet that's got my name on it, I'm lost. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this way. That while we were sinners, when we were still powerless, it says, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, it says, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, it says, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And then Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, the gift. It is the most amazing, selfless, loving gift anybody's ever given certainly, that anybody's ever received. Jesus died for you. He came here to save your life. On July 31st, 1941, a prisoner escaped from one of the Nazi concentration camps at Auschwitz. The SS officers in charge had already determined that If anybody escaped from the prison camp, they would execute 10 prisoners at random as punishment, as a deterrent. And so they looked all day for this escaped prisoner and when they couldn't find him, they did what they had agreed to do. They lined up every prisoner who belonged to this escapees section and they just started counting them off. One, two, three, they started counting them off. And making these men step forward to be executed. Eight, nine, ten. And when they named that tenth man, when they pointed to him, it was a man named Francis Gajonicek. And when they pointed at Gajonicek, he fell down to his knees, threw his hands up in the air, and began to scream for mercy. He begged that they would spare his life. I'm married, he said, and my wife needs me. I have two children. My children need me. Please don't take my life. Please spare me. And he's, he's crying in agony, begging for his life. And at this point, another prisoner stepped forward out of that line, a Franciscan priest named Maximilian Colby. Colby stepped forward and he said, let me take this man's place. And the SS officers got together and they agreed to the exchange. And so Gajanicek stepped back into the line with the rest of the prisoners and Colby and the other nine were marched down to the basement of this prison camp where they were beaten and they were starved. And after two weeks of starvation and dehydration, on August 14th, 1941, Colby was put to death with an injection of carbonic acid. Gajanicek survived Auschwitz. And the very first thing he did when he was released, he gathered up his wife and his son and his daughter, and they made a trip to Colby's home in Poland. And he had a monument built there that tells the story of how Kolby took his place. And until he died, Gajonachek and his family spent two weeks of every year on a pilgrimage there to that monument. So they could spend day and night telling the story to anybody who would listen about Maximilian Colby, the man who died in his place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me. Jesus saves your life. When you are dead, when you are separated from God by your sins, when you're unable to do anything for yourself, Jesus gives you his life. Just like with Jairus' daughter, Jesus gives you his life. He gives you his strength and he nourishes you with his body and his blood. And that's what you got for Christmas. That's what we all got. When the almighty creator of heaven and earth came here in the flesh and blood of Jesus to share your situation, to take on your burdens, to become your sin for you, to meet your greatest needs, and yes, to save your life forever. What a gift. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you go back to Luke chapter 8, after Jesus drives the demons away from this man in the tombs, the disciples get back in the boat and they're getting ready to leave. And before they shove off, they count heads to make sure they've got everybody. I'm assuming this is Matthew who does the counting. He's the tax guy, right? So he's he's counting. I know I've got one Jesus, I've got 12 apostles and he's counting nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And he counts again. Why are 14 people in this boat? The guy who had been healed, the guy Jesus had made whole, is in the boat with them. This man wants so badly to go back to Galilee and to be with Jesus. The Bible says he begged. But Jesus says, no, no, I've got a job for you. You go home to your family and friends and tell them, tell everybody what great things God has done for you today. Let me ask you. Has God done anything great in your life? Has he done anything through Jesus Christ? Anything great? Then the charge today is to receive from God through Jesus, to receive the gift, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of mercy, the gift of grace, the gift of a righteous relationship with God, And with each other, and then to share that gift, to share that same gift of forgiveness and mercy and grace and relationship with everybody we meet. Amen? Stand with me, church. I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 8. Parts of it, anyway. The parts I want to read. As for you, you were dead. Dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift, the gift of God. Let's pray together, church. Father, our hearts overflow. We are, our cups run over with gratitude and with praise and with thanksgiving because of the gift you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We've got nothing that we bring to the table, but you have given us everything in Christ. Father, I know that just a couple of minutes ago we were thinking about what you've given us. We were thinking about those gifts. Father, we want to thank you right now. Would you please listen to us? Listen to our prayers as we lift up to you in thanksgiving the gift that we have received from your son Jesus. God, would you hear our prayer as we tell you thank you? Father, we're so blessed by the love that you have lavished on us as your children. And Father, um, we also want to lift up to you right now that, that situation that we're in, that storm that we're in, or that storm that's coming. Father, we want to ask you right now to be in the boat with us. To open our eyes, to open our hearts so that we feel your presence with us in our situation. Father, listen to us, hear our hearts as we ask you to be with us in our own situation, whatever that situation is. Father, Christmas is over. But may we leave this place today determined to keep Christmas in our hearts, to remember the gift, to live and to share this gift that we have been so graciously given by you. We love you and we thank you and we praise your holy name. In the name and in the manner of our risen and coming Lord Jesus, all the church says together, amen.